hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. This conflict started August 2nd when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Kuwait, a member of the Arab League and a member of the United Nations, was crushed. Its people brutalized. Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. Welcome to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. It's war, part one. And of course, that was the Commander-in-Chief, President Bush, 41. More on why I'm using that Richard Marks classic as part of the intro, a song that was actually recorded three years before the opening of Hostilities. There's a story behind that as well. Well, when last we spoke, we were leaving Kelly Air Force Base en route finally to a destination that we knew, and that was Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. I want to thank Mike Alonzo for joining me on the podcast last week and how many of you remarked about how nice it was to hear two people talking about something that happened 30 years ago and to do so so very naturally and to be so uh, upbeat about it. I want to say, and I mentioned this on the podcast last week, I did not mean, mean to sound, as I, as I use the term, to be with misplaced bravado about the way we approached the war back in 1991. But I have to tell you, in all honesty and candor, Mike and I were just that cavalier about the whole thing. We just never had a doubt that we were going to get through that entire thing without a scratch. And so we're now on our way to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. We left Kelly Air Force Base at night. We flew to Bangor, Maine. From Bangor, Maine, we went to Brussels, Belgium, and then into Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Knowing from my three years in the active duty before Desert Storm and having made some pretty long airplane trips uh, to Australia, to Panama, and elsewhere, I knew the best way to pass time on the plane was to go to sleep. And I did something that this very day I can't really explain. One of the last purchases I made before leaving for Desert Shield Desert Storm was to buy a, a box of NyQuil. And if you don't know what NyQuil is, it is the sleepy, what is it, the sniffling, sneezing, stuffy head fever so you can rest medicine. Basically, NyQuil works by putting you to sleep. You're so asleep, you don't know that you have sniffles and sneezes and coughs and a fever. It even comes with like a little shot glass on top of it. And so I thought I would take a shot of this on the airplane and sleep through the whole thing. Well, of course, I'm so amped up, the first one doesn't work and the second one does. And I remember waking up on the tarmac in Bangor, Maine. I do not remember if we ever got off the plane at either one of those stops. I remember in Bangor, they had to de-ice the plane. It's January, after all, and as cold as it was in San Antonio when we left in mid-January, it was much, much colder in Bangor, Maine. Uh, next, I knew we were landing in Brussels, Belgium. And then I, the only other thing I really remember about the flight over there, uh, in addition to the NyQuil and the numerous games of tennis that Mike and I played on our Game Boys, was that at one point the pilot came on and said, hey, we're flying over the Italian Alps. And I had a box camera, one of those old box cameras with I think 24 exposures. 
And I decided, hey, that's a good time to take a picture. And so I took a picture of the Italian Alps, and that picture is on the episode description. Now, before we left for Saudi Arabia, nobody knew we were going to go to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, but part of that dizzying three-and-a-half-week process of getting placed back in the active duty army from our reserve status was we went to a lot of classes at Fort Sam Houston learning about what was referred to as Arab culture. The whole time I was in Saudi Arabia, which is the home of the Muslim faith, I don't think I ever heard the term Islam or heard the term Muslim. Everything was referred to as the Arab culture. And so we had this laundry list of things that we couldn't do. You could not have an American flag present on your uniform. You could not have a crucifix visible around your neck. You could not have any kind of Bible verse written on your helmet. And you certainly could not have any alcohol or any kind of PG-13 moment here, pornography, girly magazines, anything like that. All of that stuff was banned. You couldn't have it. Now, Nobody checked us before we left, and I didn't have any of that stuff. The only thing I brought with me that was probably not supposed to go was I had a 32 caliber five-shot revolver that I brought with me and the, and the five rounds that came with it, and that's all I had. I thought, you know, last stand, if it's ever necessary, at least I have, I have this. I had it wrapped in a towel in my, in my duffel bag, and I would carry it with me throughout the war. There's a story about that coming up. Too. And so the other thing was that we could not refer to our chaplains as chaplains. They were called morale officers. And so I'm heading into Saudi Arabia with this, this sense of who do these guys think they are? We're coming to help them, and they're telling us what we can and can't do. I already had this bit of resentment built up around the Arab people and the Arab culture. And so we land in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia it's in the evening time, and I, I knew we were, were there. They announced it, and as we're taxiing, I can see, you know, I can see military planes. I don't, I, we must have landed at Riyadh International Airport. I think it was called King Fahd International Airport. If you didn't hear the first episode, and many of you have not, I'm doing all of this from memory. By the way, I, I am not doing Google research. I'm not doing anything like that. Now, over the years, I've read the occasional article on, you know, 20 years since the Gulf War, or 10 years since the Gulf War, and things like that. But I'm, not, I'm deliberately not doing any research on this. It's all from memory. And like I said, I've checked some of my memories with Mike and, and Jerry Resnick that you've heard me refer, refer to on the podcast up to this point. And so we get to Riyadh, and it's nighttime. And like everybody else, I've watched the news for the past eight months, you know, the men and women out in the desert with the tents and everything. And I assume that's where we're going or we're going to spend the night at the airport or, you know, we're going to sleep in some kind of tent city. Uh, I, I one time spent two days sleeping next to an airstrip somewhere in the middle of Panama waiting for the Air Force to come pick us up. So, I mean, the military is pretty self-sufficient. You can have enough food and water on your person to last you for two days, and you're expected to sleep wherever you are. I've slept in some of the craziest places on Earth. And so I wasn't worried about that. Well, we get off the plane, we get put on buses, and we get taken to this, what we learn is called Eskon Village. People that were in Riyadh during the war will, will know this place very, very well. There, are, there was, at the time, and probably still is, a group of peripatetic nomadic people called the Bedouins. They just, they just 
kind of wander through the Saudi Arabian desert with their camels and their families pitching tents and living out in the elements. I, I don't know what they do. That, that's just what Bedouins do, I guess. And so back in the late 80s, the Saudi government built this village up so that when the Bedouins came into Riyadh, they had a place to stay, get cleaned up. And because Bedouins are Bedouins, they never used it. They, they don't need public housing. They've got camels and tents and whatever it is that Bedouins do. And this is where the American military personnel were being housed in Saudi Arabia before and during the war. And it's still there, by the way, to the best of my knowledge. So we get to Escon Village and the buses stop. And as I've mentioned before, I, I was when I was in the Army, the majority of my deployments were with my company, Alpha Company, uh, 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry, 7th Infantry Division. That's about 120 guys with the attachments that we get, the medics and the forward observers and, the, and things like that, the surgeon and the physician's assistant, you know, 120, 130 people tops. The 217th Evacuation Hospital out of San Antonio, Texas, of the Texas National Guard, which is who I'm deploying with in 1991, we had almost 400 people in that unit. It is a big, big unit. And so we get there, and um, we're being assigned. We're standing in front of these buildings. My, I've got a picture there in the episode description. I mean, they look like college dormitories, and... You know, like I said, Saudi Arabia is the capital of oil and gas worldwide, and even their public housing is beautiful and modestly extravagant and marble stairways. It was just very, very nice. And we walk in there, and my first thought was, this is nicer than my apartment back home. And so initially, Mike and myself, we get assigned to like a common area. It's like these little rooms. It's like it's like a college dorm room. And then every now and then you have like a little common area, like an open area with a balcony. I wasn't crazy about that because the balcony, the sliding glass patio doors were made of glass, which we immediately, you know, taped up uh, just in case. And we did not know the war was going to start the next night. And so, uh, you know, we're trying to get settled in. We got issued these really weird gaudy um, foam mattresses and bed frames. And so my first thought is, wow, the, the, the billets are actually pretty nice. This is not so Terrible. I had no idea if it would be staying there the whole time, if this was just a temporary stop. We really had no idea what was going to happen. This is on the 15th of January, 1991, um, stateside time. I think it was actually the 16th in Saudi Arabia, but I'm, I'm trying to keep this straight in my head, thinking about how people were experiencing this back home in the United States. And so we get there, and again, no, you know, no email, no cell phones, no iWatches. I had a little um, Casio wristwatch, a cheap little wristwatch that still had the time, Central Standard Time in Texas, and I had that the whole time. And I always wanted to know what time it was back home. I didn't really care what time it was in Riyadh. It was either morning, afternoon, or night when I was there. Time really had no meaning to me when I was over there, except uh, as you'll find out when I had to go on guard duty and things like that. And so uh, Mike and myself and a guy named Sergeant Fears, uh, a black guy who had been assigned to our unit, I think from Georgia, from another unit in Georgia, are placed in this common area. Everyone else has rooms and there's bathrooms. We're going to these bathrooms and have these weird little secondary 
toilet-looking things. Nobody knew what they were. They were bidets, uh, something that's, I guess, very common in other parts of the world. Uh, we had no idea what they were. Like, are these things water fountains? Nobody, nobody knew. They had not covered that in the Arab cultural classes. It was really mostly about don't offend these people that we're going to defend. And so, like I said, we got about 400 people in this unit, and everything, every message comes from the the advanced team that was already that had already set up this little command center down on the on the bottom floor. And they had like a very old school looking computer thing and some telephones and whatnot and typewriters and this kind of stuff. And they would basically, they, were, they would send somebody up to each floor saying, here's an announcement that everybody needs to know. And it would just be like a game of telephone. You know, people would go tell everybody else what was going on. And one of the first major announcements was that since we were in country now, everybody was going to get a chance to make a five minute phone call home. And, you know, it was like, okay, A through E tonight and then through the alphabet over the next couple nights until everyone had a chance to make a phone call. Well, both, um, you know, Jason Dias and my friend Mike Alonzo, we were in that A to E category. And so, you know, we're getting settled in. We go downstairs. I'm very happy to make a phone call home just to let my folks know that I've arrived safe and sound. And we get down there. And, I mean, in a unit of 400 people, A through E, there's 40 or 50 people in the line. And as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, the only thing I ever feared in those days was being bored. I didn't like to wait in line. Nobody does. And so I looked at Mike and I said, come with me. Let's go find out where the Air Force is and they will have better uh, facilities. Now, I knew that, one, based upon the fact that I grew up next to Randolph Air Force Base, which is called the show base of the United States Air Force, and is a beautiful, maybe one of the most beautiful military installations anywhere in the American military. But when I was at Fort Ord at the 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry, and the 7th Infantry Division, our claim to fame was that we could have a company of soldiers placed anywhere on the globe in 18 hours. Now, we couldn't walk there, obviously. We had to rely on the Air Force to fly us there. So uh, every month, a different company of soldiers was sent to Travis Air Force Base near Sacramento, California, and, and was like there just in case on what was called on alert. And we loved it. We loved going to Travis Air Force Base because, again, the facilities were so much nicer. It was my experience that the Air Force female airmen were better looking than the female army soldiers back at Fort Ord anyway. So Mike and I, you know, we're walking around trying not to stray too far from this little set of dormitories that we're staying in. And we just ask around, hey, where's the Air Force staying? Where's the Air Force staying? And we get directed to this, I don't even know what to call them, like little cabanas sort of off behind our building. They look like little duplexes. And I walk up to uh, walk up to a couple of them, knock on the door, nobody answers. We go to another one and knock on the door. And to our surprise, an Air Force major answers the door. Now, Mike and I are both enlisted guys, E-4s, in chess parlance. We are pawns. We are not very important. A major in the Air Force in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, during Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, is on the back row of the chessboard. He's a knight. He's a rook. He's a bishop. Kind of a, kind of a big deal. And so, what I do next, my uh, my young friend up in Nashville, uh, Grace, would be so proud of me. I, I should have gotten an Academy Award for what I did next. Like the time Viola Davis got an Academy Award for that movie and she was only in one scene. I, I look up 
at the like you're looking for an address like like oh no I'm at the wrong address I'm looking up like I'm looking at the like for a street address which doesn't exist and um, I say oh I go into this whole act oh. I'm so sorry. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry to bother you, sir. We oh, this uh, this is so disappointing. I'm so sorry, sir. And he goes, "What? What's wrong?" And I said, "Well, we we had a friend that was staying over here and we just got here and he was going to let us call our moms and we we didn't we didn't mean to bother you. We'll, we'll just have to keep looking for him." He's like, "No, no, no. Hey, I've got a phone. Come on in. I'd love the company." And so Mike and I walk in, and I mean, this guy's got no furniture. There's a little, uh, little 19-inch television sitting on the floor with tin foil and rabbit ears. And I remember because CNN was on, and I remember the sports was on because in those days there was a guy named Van Earl Wright who used to do the headlines on the sports, and he would always say Los Angeles. He would always say. Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Lakers defeated the San Antonio Spurs. Whatever. And, I, and I still, to this very day, whenever I hear Los Angeles, I still say Los Angeles, uh, like Van Earl Wright used to. And he had a, a chair he had made out of sandbags and MRE boxes. If you've ever seen the movie Platoon, it's like that chair Raj sits in in the bunker when the guys are at base camp smoking, smoking grass in the movie Platoon. And he has a little phone sitting next to that chair had no idea what he did he's going to play a incredibly important role in my wartime experience i don't know this on the first night and and he allows us to make a phone call home i i, I you know get down indian style and he tells me i dial one country code he's got it all written down on a little card there next to the phone and to my great surprise you know the dial the the ring is a little different it's like and there's kind of a sound in the background and i i can't believe it my grandmother answers the phone my grandmother rita my french grandmother uh rita duquette my mom's mom and um she had come to live with us when i was in fourth grade and i love my mom and dad i have a great intact family my grandmother was like a second mom, the, the coolest of grandmothers and moms and transcended grandmother to friend, my confidant, you know, the, the grandmother who would, you know, turn a blind eye when I would show up after school with the head cheerleader or with the six pack of beer or whatever, you know, just a, just a, just absolute love. My love, love, loved my grandmother. And I say, hey, Grandma, it's Jason. I just want to let you know that I'm here. And she's like, oh, Jay, oh, Jay. You know, everyone in my family calls me Jay. And she, she gets my mom, and my mom gets on the phone. I say, hey, I'm in Riyadh. We're okay. Can't tell you much else. I uh, just want to let you know that we made it safe and sound. I don't remember if I talked to my dad or my sisters. My brother was in the Air Force at the time. He was not in country. I think he was in Guam in 1991. And then towards the end of this very brief conversation, my mom says, okay, okay, hold on. Your grandmother wants to say something to you. And she puts my grandmother back on the phone. And um, my grandmother, you know, oh, Jay, I love you. I'm praying for you. I'll be praying for you. You know, um, uh, I've got everybody in my, my Bible study praying for you. And I, I thank you, Grandma. I'm fine. I love you, too. And, you know, and, and then I hang up the phone and let Mike call his parents. And he talks to his mom and dad. Uh, my grandmother would die a year later. 
in February of 1992. Uh, just a cruel irony, a woman that never drank, dying from liver disease, lupus. And on the, she, you heard Mike mention he worked at the Baptist. He's referring to the Baptist health care system. I also worked at the Baptist health care system for a period of time. And uh, you know, I, I was there at the Baptist hospital near my apartment and the, the doctor in charge of my grandma was like, you know, and I knew her because I had worked at the hospital, Dr. Thayer. And Dr. Thayer tells me, you know, Jason, this is it. When you go into that room, it's you're saying goodbye to your grandmother. And um, I had to edit about uh, four seconds of uh, of lump in my throat there. Uh, but that night when I was saying goodbye to my grandmother, something I've never told anybody before, you know, it's just, you know, it's telling her I love her, telling her goodbye. She's telling me how she's ready for this. But then she says, I'll never forget the night you called me from the war. And she just said, oh, my heart, my heart, my heart leapt when I heard your voice. And she's like, I'm so glad you're here now. And so, we make our phone calls. Um, we head back to our building, and as I walk in, um, one of the guys that I mentioned in the first episode who had greeted me uh, at the 217th Evacuation Hospital, and it was the guy that gave me the dirty look when I told him I didn't speak Spanish and was one of those guys that really didn't care for me, uh, walks out with something in his hand. And he says, hey, Dias, what is this? This came for you, and he hands it to me. And I have no idea what it is. I look at it, and it's a piece of paper. And it's, I, I'm trying to process what this could be. I have no idea where I am. I said, what is this? Where did this come from? And he goes, you tell me. We don't know. Nobody knows how this got here. And, and I'm looking at it, and I'm, I'm just scanning everything. Well, my mom best friend from when she was in high school was named Agatha. We called her our Aunt Aggie. She wasn't really my aunt, but we called her Aunt Aggie. She worked at the Naval Postgraduate School in Newport, Rhode Island, which is still there. It's where Naval graduates from the Naval Academy go for like their second round of training. It's still there. They do all kinds of stuff. The submarines are up there in Newport, Rhode Island. Pretty important place. And she had sent me this, I guess it was like a fax or an e-fax or an email sent on what was used in the military in those days called the ARPANET. It was the forerunner of the internet. And I had no idea what it was. It was just one paragraph. Hey, Jason, we're all praying for you. Please be safe. And, you know, signed on Aggie, her title, Naval Postgraduate School. And I said, this is from my aunt at the Naval Postgraduate School. And they're like, well, how did it get here? I was like, I have no idea. And as I've talked about in the past, you know, it's, I already have kind of this, this thing in the unit, as, the, as they used to call me all the time, the coconut, brown on the outside, white on the inside. This sort of, you know, through, through kerosene on that flame, it's like here's yet another example of this entitled guy. He's got all these connections. He knows people. He's already getting mail uh, sent to him over the, the fax machine or whatever it was. And it was just one of those moments where I, I to this very day, I called my dad yesterday and tried to figure out how in the world it got there. And uh, my aunt Aggie, she she has must, um, MS. She's she's not in a condition to talk to, and she I don't know that she would remember this. And I, I talked to my dad, who worked for the Air Force during 1991 and for 32 years, and 
It, and, and he didn't know how that was transmitted, and I still don't know to this very day. And so it was just one of those, just one of those weird moments. And and then of course this guy that had given it to me, I kept it for a long time. But you know how does you move and you've got stuff in the old junk box, and then things just get lost. I don't have it anymore. I, I've since lost it. And to this very day, 30 years later, uh, almost to the day, I have no idea how it got there. I, I wish I had asked uh, Aunt Aggie. I don't think I've seen her. Um, um, since well before that. And so anyway, so uh, after that, the guy says, oh, by the way, you know, you're, you're one of our guards. We have to guard our own building. Uh, even though we're within this perimeter, there are contractors. We've seen people walking around in Arab headdresses and stuff like that. So we don't know who these people are. So we have to guard our own building. And I'm told I will have the 12 to 6 guard shift, 12 midnight to 6 o'clock in the morning. No big deal. You got to go down to the armory and draw a weapon, um, which I'm happy to go do. And so Mike goes upstairs. I go downstairs to to get my weapon. And in the downstairs, there's another big community room. It's it's I don't even know how to describe it. It's much bigger than a family room or a living room. Uh, it would it would it would sit you know safely 30 or 40 people, pretty decent, it's like a hotel ballroom, not not big one, like a small one, like a a small hotel ballroom when they when they section it off, and. And so um, I'm walking down, I get my rifle, I'm walking back, and I look in there, and I see our chaplain, a.k.a. the morale officer. I always called him Padre. I don't, we, in the military, no matter what you do in the medical profession, you're called doc. And no matter, you could be a Jewish rabbi, you're going to be called Padre. I say, hey, Padre, what's up? And, and he looks a little crestfallen. He looks a little disappointed. And I look around, and he's, he's got these little um, pamphlets and things laid out on the benches. And he goes, well, um, I, I'd, I'd called for a little prayer service to, you know, to give thanks for us getting here safely, and nobody came. And I was, oh, I'm, I said, I'm so sorry. I, I thought it was about to happen. He said, yeah, it was supposed to happen at seven o'clock, but nobody, nobody came down here. And and I said, well, that's, I said, I'm sorry. You know, you know how it is. Everyone's just getting settled in. But like I said, he looked a little disappointed, a little dejected. And he goes, well, here I was going to give this out as a door prize, and he handed me. It was a little camouflage Bible, and it said the New Testament and the Psalms, and he handed me another little box, and it is what we, re- we referred to at the time. Um, uh, younger people, Generation Next will have to Google this. It was what was called a transistor radio, and it was, a, it was about the size of an iPhone, but, but thicker, obviously, because it took a, a AA battery, and it had a little antenna that you popped out, and you could extend the antenna. And he had taken on a piece of masking tape and written down the FM or AM station, whatever it was, to get armed forces radio. And so I went upstairs and I had a I had some batteries that we were going to use for the Game Boy when the first set of batteries went out. I think we were probably on our second set of batteries after that long flight anyway. And so I put the little you know, battery in there and I went out on the balcony and sure enough, armed forces radio. And so at at twelve o'clock I reported for for guard duty. They're like, Jason, you're going to be on the roof. We have other guys on the door, and they, you know, they said your job is to keep an eye on that fence line, make sure nobody comes over the fence, uh, and if anybody comes over the fence, let somebody know. We had no radios, we had no night optics. These mercury vapor lights, which lined the perimeter of Escon Village, gave us gave enough ambient light that if you really had to, you could aim down on somebody with the iron sights. And so this is the old M16A1, no optics to speak of whatsoever. And I had 
a 30-round magazine of, of a, of bullets of rounds and and so that's where I was uh, that's where I was at midnight I you know went up and I was told you know uh, at some point you'll be relieved for a short break you know you can use the restroom or whatever take a get off your feet and I just want you to imagine we're in the 27th minute of this podcast imagine if I said you've got to just go stand on a roof for six hours you know no books no no radio no you know I took it very seriously I did not take the radio with me I had no Distractions. I was pretty wire tight in those days, and I took the the job of guarding that building very, very seriously because this is real now. You know, we're in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. The rumors are that the war could start any moment. The uh, UN deadline is supposed to expire, I think, that night or the very next day. I don't recall which. I think it would have to be that night because we're about to get to the start of the war. And so I guess it was around oh, three or four o'clock in the morning. I was I was relieved for a break, and I went downstairs. And everybody else is asleep. And I went down to where that little area was, where Sergeant Fears and Michael was sleeping. And I laid on my bunk, and I took out that transistor radio, and I turned it on. And if you ever listen to one of those like Bob FM stations where they play everything. That's how Armed Forces Radio was. It was a country song, a rock song, and a lot of top 40 songs. And if you're not a baby boomer or Generation X and you don't know who Richard Marks is, in the late 80s and 1990s, he could have recorded himself putting his face in a garbage disposal and it would have been a number one hit. He was just an absolute hit machine. And so I turn on that radio and it's Richard Marks, and it's Hold On to the Night. I remember that like it was yesterday. And, and I liked Richard Marks. Everybody liked Richard Marks. He nothing but hits in those days. And I'm sitting there listening to it, enjoying a little break, and then it just stops. And I hear like, you know, somebody, I just touched the microphone. You know, somebody shuffling papers. And I hear an announcement. And it's a voice that is familiar certainly to every soldier and probably every American at that time. It's General Norman Schwarzkopf with the announcement, you know, pre-recorded, And it says, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines of the United States Central Command. This morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm, an offensive campaign that will enforce the United Nations resolutions that Iraq must cease its rape and pillage of its weaker neighbor and withdraw its forces from Kuwait. The President, the Congress, the American people, and indeed the world stand united in their support for your actions. You are a member of the most powerful force our country and coalition and our allies has ever assembled in a single theater to face such an aggressor. You have trained hard for this battle, and you are ready. During my visits with you, I have seen in your eyes a fire of determination to get this job done quickly so that we may all return to the shores of our great nation. My confidence in you is total. Our cause is just. Now you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. May God be with you, your loved ones at home, and our country. A month before, I had been selling shoes at Endicott Johnson Shoe Store at Windsor Park Mall, and now it's war. Now things are about to get very interesting. Join me next time on Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. <laughs>